0: Welcome to my podcast, Musings of a Christian Philosopher, where we talk about deep and often challenging topics of theology and philosophy. I'm your host, Adam Polstra. Let's get started. Good day, everybody. I've had on my mind lately what I would call the most difficult commandments of Jesus for various reasons. Three of them in particular, certainly not all of the challenges that Jesus brought to the people of Israel when he came there, but certainly yeah three of the more thorny ones. and those three are when Jesus told or said that if you look upon a woman and lust it with her in your heart, you have committed or lust with her, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. The other being his instruction against divorce and that if you marry anybody who has been divorced, you've committed adultery, committed adultery. I'm kind of paraphrasing these as I go through. And the other is, if you do not hate father and mother and your own life, uh, sister, brother and your own life also, you cannot be, be my disciple. And I left out an important part there, uh, hate them for my sake. Obviously, all three of these are challenging in a variety of ways, and one could have a, de- a great deal of questions around, you know, the context in which they were said, the language, uh, if there's nuances there, if there's things that have been lost to time, and I want to show that these are not show, as in. I have the correct interpretation of these things, and I know exactly what Jesus Jesus was talking about. I don't intend to be that pretentious. My desire here is to show how these might be interpreted, and how they can make a great deal of sense in a reasonable life today. So, let me start actually with the third one that I mentioned. If you do not hate father and mother and sister and brother and your own life also for my sake, you cannot be my disciple. Now, some of the best advice that I've heard on this particular commandment comes from C.S. Lewis, but I have had Lewis's interpretation of it backed up by moral and philosophical lessons that I've received since. See, the issue here comes primarily from the word hate. I think we can all understand relationship breakdowns when it comes to one's own family, immediate or extended. But hating one's own family seems rather extreme. However, hate does not necessarily have to mean the desire for evil to befall another person or the desire for another person's damnation or something like that. To hate Think about it. There are other parts of the Bible where the scripture speaks of God hating this or hating that. And can we really say that God, about whom it is also said he does not desire that any should perish, that this same God also desires, if we use this definition of hate, the destruction, the horrors and evils of all things bad to befall an individual who he hates or to befall pride, or something like that. I don't think that makes a great deal of sense. C.S. Lewis points out that another way of interpreting the word hate is something more like a Amish shunning. And that's not exactly how he puts it, it's just the easiest way for me to get to that point. He points out that hate can, in some contexts, mean simply to turn away from, to reject, to put out of your life or out of your sight and those who know the bible pretty well are going to recognize that a lot of those phrases are used in conversation with god himself he talks about how he will turn away from the israelites if they do not follow in the covenant he's making with them he will turn his face away he will reject could those words not be very easily replaced with hate but of course to modern ears that would be very confusing, and I think it is that very confusion that we have with this verse or with this series of verses. I can't remember if it's one or several, but that's just a more modern splitting up of the words anyway. Anyhow, so what we're seeing here, if that interpretation is more accurate, is that Jesus is saying that we should be willing to reject, or we should be rejecting, if we take it this way, the relationships with even the people closest to us for his sake. Now, if we take that in reference with the Christians that followed after Christ and followed Christ himself, it doesn't really seem to make a whole lot of sense. Because, of course, in instances where the whole family was united in following Christ, they did not abandon their families for Christ. So if it was that universal that wouldn't make any sense whatsoever. The question is is one's family willing to do essentially the same. Another way of putting it is is every member of your family really willing to really willing to learn, uh, to live virtuously. If everyone is then there really should be no breakdown there should be no problems. If everyone is willing to live for Christ to live virtuously to do to live as he instructs us to live, then there should be no breakdown, morally speaking. However, if the family does resist, if the family members, even those closest to you, or closest friends, see you turning towards Christ and living virtuously, and they try to hold you back, they hate you for it, they try to reject you for it or shame you for it, then this would align very closely with what specifically Jesus told his disciples to do when he sent them out on mission. What did he tell them to do? He said that if the people to whom you preach when you're out on this mission reject your words, then you wipe the dust off of your feet and you walk away. In other words, you reject them. If they reject you, you reject them. What Jesus may very well have been saying is if you choose to live for Christ and to live virtuously, and the people closest to you reject you for it, then you reject them back. It may be as simple as that. And make no mistake, if you have been raised up in an environment of evil, of abuse, of manipulation, and you begin to wake up, Even, for example, if you get into a genuine relationship with somebody who loves you truly, who accepts you, who supports you, and you them. If you grew up in an environment of people who abused you and manipulated you, they're going to try to prevent you from having that relationship. Why? Because if you are allowed to have that relationship, you see the contrast between this person who loves you and these people who claim to love you but really don't. Or, here's another example. If you grew up in a household of quasi-Christianity, quasi-religiosity, that was really just a form of control and manipulation in and of itself, if you begin to discover the true faith, if you begin to discover that this is really about living virtuously, it's not about all this hocus-pocus, super-spiritual, if-I-believe-enough, whatever it looks like, then when you begin to accept that, that family member or those family members will begin to reject you. Why? Because you are beginning to break down the basis upon which they have tried to live their entire lives. And most people are not going to be willing to make that kind of a shift, certainly not that quickly. So you threaten the very foundation upon which they have built their lives. But if the foundation upon which they have built their lives is manipulation, control, and abuse masquerading as religion, which a lot of us have chafed at, and quite rightly so, then they are going to be vested, they're going to have a very vested interest in stopping you at all costs. What is the best way to get out of this kind of a situation? To reject them. Now you may not have to necessarily reject them outright. You can simply keep facing them with the truth until they reject you. But you have to be willing to do it. You have to be willing to turn your back on all of that. If what they are doing is to your harm. And to the harm of your pursuit of Christ and of goodness and of virtue. So... What I'm pointing out is that in very real life, very real lives, it can occur quite naturally if you are consistently going for what is good and virtuous, some people even often inc- or even sometimes including those who were supposed to be the closest to you will reject you for it, they will hate you for it, and if you accept them, in other words, if you choose to love them, continue to love them, in some sense, above and beyond your new pursuit of virtue and of Christ, then you will be putting their false religion or whatever it is, their blood relationship, above your relationship with Christ. This is a non-starter. If you do not choose in those extreme circumstances to turn away from those who have the blood relation or something like that, then you're not following Christ at all. Now, am I saying that this is the correct interpretation? Not necessarily. However, it does make a whole lot more sense when it comes to real life. What Jesus may have been pointing out is, this is what will be necessary for some people if they are truly pursuing me. This will occasionally come up as a result thereof. So he may not be, he probably was not saying, and I say probably once again because that is not how Christians have largely lived ever since Christ and even shortly after Christ departed. He was not necessarily saying this is something you are obliged to do universally. What he may have been saying is this is what will happen to some. This is, or sorry, not just will happen to some, it's what you will have to be willing to do if necessary, in order to truly follow me consistently and to live virtuously, and so on. So that's enough with the first one. Let's go to the next. If you look upon a woman and lust with her, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. Now there's a few choice terms here as well. The first term that causes a difficulty is, of course, the word lust. To some people in the modern day, lust simply is a essentially a synonym for affection, strong affection, sexual desire, that kind of a thing. Something that is, in fact, very necessary, ordinary, natural to especially men. If we didn't have that kind of sexual desire, if we didn't have a fairly high libido, uh, well, families wouldn't be formed. We wouldn't... uh, Consider it. Would we really want to deal with the extra responsibility of not just a woman, but of also children and financial responsibility and all of that if we weren't a little bit crazy with sexual desire as men? Now, I'm not saying that we should give in to that. That's kind of what I think this is addressing. My point is, if God didn't build into men a fairly high sexual desire, and instead, we just were left with raw evaluation of what we might have to be, do, what we will have to do if we accept family into our lives. A lot of people would just reject it out of hand. So, if that's what lust means, if lust is simply natural sexual desire, then Jesus' words are fairly silly, especially to a secular mind. And I study under sexual, te- uh, sorry, <laughs> sexual teachers, secular teachers, as well as Christian ones. So I've had some experience with different interpretations. Now, if lust, on the other hand, is something more like what the Scripture talks about in other areas, so a thought, this isn't scri- specifically Scripture, but it's scripturally based, sow a thought, reap an action, sow an action, reap a habit, and so on and so forth. That whole process that begins with a thought. If lust is a little bit more like that, if lust is a plan or at least an intention to take this woman home and to do, have your desires upon her, then that's a very different thing. If lust is not just the uprising of fairly spontaneous sexual desire to an attractive body and, and uh, face, but rather an actual plan an intention, even if not carried out, to go and have your way with this person, then the rest of Jesus' words make a whole lot of sense, don't they? You have committed adultery with her in your heart. In other words, you have carried out in the frame of your mind the very act of committing adultery with her in your heart. Now, if it's as simple as that, why would Jesus have to point it out? Well, how often? And keep in mind that Jesus very often was specifically talking to Pharisees. He was talking to people who in their time were highly respected, of high authority, who were not believed to essentially be able to do anything wrong by some people. He very often exposed, and I'm not not saying specifically that's what he was doing here. I'm just saying this is very often how Jesus framed his ideas and words and analogies and parables. He was often pointing out something that people were doing, and they think that they were get, thought that they were getting away with it. They thought that they were justified in doing it. And he would open the door, put the mirror up in front of these people and say, "Hey, you think that you're getting away with doing this in your mind and in your heart. But as a matter of fact, What you are doing is committing adultery with these women. And of course, they bristle and they start turning red and they find some way to discredit Jesus instead of arguing against him, which is a manipulative tactic, by the way. Anyway, Jesus certainly, and as do people today, very often have to point out extremely obvious things to some people in order to get them to even begin to acknowledge that something might be wrong. Sometimes the most obvious things are the most avoided. Now, again, I don't mean to imply that I think that I am correctly interpreting all of these ideas that I'm bringing up today. I'm just presenting a a different kind of idea that might be true. Hopefully, I'm at least somewhat accurate. That's always my hope. Anyway, so if lust means that, then lust doesn't just mean having a spontaneous, ooh, I'm getting a bit of a chubby, because I'm looking at somebody who's very attractive, and I find myself attracted to her. Personally, I think that that kind of a reaction And this is something that church people have a great deal of difficulty with. I think that that kind of a reaction, as long as it is not carried any further, is in fact a compliment. Why? Because we're built this way. Men are built this way. And I do, by the way, believe that women are fully capable of doing the same wrong in their hearts, committing adultery with a man in their hearts. Absolutely. But that wasn't as much of an issue back then. I think it's becoming more of an issue now. And so women, in my opinion, should be paying a great deal of attention to Jesus' words in this context also. But if you're just looking, and women don't necessarily get aroused, but they do certainly look at men and consider them desirable, just as men do. It's just that men have a tendency to physically have a reaction at that very moment. That reaction in and of itself is a wonderful compliment. And if both people involved can simply keep it at that, Whether or not they actually are asking each other out or the man asking her out or something like that is another issue. If it is simply, yeah, I think you're attractive. I find you attractive and I find myself sexually desiring because of simply seeing you. That to me is not lust and it's a compliment because you're essentially telling the other person, yeah, I find you desirable. Simply that. I cannot find any way to consider that a sin simply because I... If if you tried to point to me, a single man who would say that he has never had that reaction to seeing somebody who he considers very attractive, if he would claim that in front of me, I will point to him and say, Liar. This is extremely natural for a man to feel. As long as he is functioning adequately in health, with proper hormones, etc. Yeah, he's gone through that. And if that is so completely unavoidable, I cannot justify any idea of seeing it as a sin. Men sexually desire. Again, if we didn't, a lot of our society wouldn't even function right. We would not be half as ambitious as we are as men in pursuing women if we did not have sexual desire. It's not wrong in and of itself, in my opinion. In my opinion, it only becomes wrong when you add intentionality, when you sow a thought, when you dwell on it. Men can feel strong sexual desire for 15 women on a beach and 10 minutes later not remember a single one of their faces or even probably what pose they were in. It's very normal for us. And women similarly can look at plenty of men and consider them very attractive, find themselves even embarrassed sometimes for how much they find themselves reacting to a man. And I don't think there is any sin in there at all. It's too natural. It's too normal. If God built us this way and it is sinful to be so, then God built us to be sinful, and that doesn't make a lick of sense to me. Anyway, enough about that one, so let's move to the third and final. For today, anyway. How does it go? Let's see. As always, I'm driving, so I need to remember these kind of off the top of my head. If a man divorces his wife for any reason, and then marries another, he commits adultery. And if a man marries a divorced woman, he commits adultery. In other references, Jesus Jesus points out that he makes an exception for adultery being committed. In other words, um, not infidelity, um, unfaithfulness, right? If the spouse has been unfaithful, then he makes an exception. And he points out in no uncertain terms the echo of the words from God the Father, from the prophets. I hate divorce. It's very strong words, certainly. And especially in modern day, it makes a lot of our lives extremely difficult because relationships are very crappy, not always and 100% of the time. But it's very clear that people today do not know how to do relationships. So quite rightly, people bristle at these words and find themselves willy-nilly, at least by some people's interpretations, going directly against these words on a regular basis. People marrying those who've been divorced, are they committing adultery? People divorcing each other, are they commi- and then remarrying, are they committing adultery? And not falling under mere infidelity and unfaithfulness, in other words, the spouse committing adultery on you first, or something like that. How do we look at these and match them with modern day if they apply at all? Well, personally, I think they apply very easily. Why? Who, again, was Jesus talking to? He was talking to, very often, again, Pharisees, people of high authority, people who could do, essentially, what they whatever they wanted to do and get away with it. He was talking to people who were not divorcing their wives. And, of course, we have to keep in mind that in these times, men were the only ones who could confirm a divorce. In fact, if he was not willing to go along with it, it didn't take. A woman could not initiate or finalize. A woman was fairly powerless in this area. Not justifying it, it was just the fact of the times. So, men very clearly were divorcing their wives for not very good reason. In fact, the question that was brought to Jesus that opened up this conversation was, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? And Jesus starts out pointing out that Moses merely—Moses was given permission, essentially, to issue certificates of divorce merely because of the stubbornness of the Israelite people, not because it was desirable, not because it was the right way. And then he goes on to say what I've already Paraphrased or maybe quoted if I did well enough. Anyway, so he was pointing out to these people that you are divorcing your wives, specifically the men in this context, for very frivolous reasons. And then he very strongly points out that if you divorce your wife and then remarry, you're committing adultery. Who's he talking to? He's talking to people Who have been frivolously divorcing. Essentially, you could match it up to today where uh, the shoe being on the other foot in a lot of cases, women are divorcing their husbands for what primary reason? What is the number one reason why women are divorcing their husbands? Do you know it? Statistically speaking, because they're dissatisfied. They're dissatisfied. Women are divorced, and it's not every case, right? There are plenty of very legitimate cases where it's been highly abusive, there has been adultery, etc., etc. But in the majority of cases, today, when a woman initiates a divorce, her reason for it is she's dissatisfied in the marriage. Now you want to talk about frivolous. And I'm not saying there aren't issues. There are probably issues. There were probably issues in the marriages of these Pharisees and so on and so forth back in their day. But if Jesus were to come today, how likely would it be that he would be saying something fairly similar to women instead today? If you frivolously divorce your husband, if you frivolously divorce your wife, and then marry another, you are committing adultery. And if you marry a woman so frivolously divorced if you're the man marrying that woman you have committed adultery committed adultery with her why because nothing of the marriage vows has been betrayed jesus points out a very obvious case of marriage vow betrayal essentially infidelity unfaithfulness adultery that kind of thing as an exception he points out that that is one and it's the only exception he mentions, but anyway, one at least very obvious reason for divorce because you've broken the marriage vows themselves. You've broken the very purpose of marriage in general. So this is going. Uh, now I'm going to go into more hypothetical or theoretical territory. This this is more guesswork from me, but in today's world where we have so many relationships that are not just broken down, but honestly horrible. There's manipulation, there's straight up abuse, there's control, there's adultery. But leaving out adultery, let's just stick to the abuse, horrid things, physical violence, emotional abuse, and so on. In cases like that, can it really be said, if the primary abuser refuses to change their ways or even admit a single fault, that such a spouse has not in fact committed infidelity? They may not, in fact, have committed adultery, but have they not gone entirely back on all the marriage vows? Whatever they may have been. I'll be faithful to you. I will be loyal to you. I will love you. Whatever might have been said. If they are then absolutely monstrous, horrible, demonic to the other person. Can they really be said to be fulfilling their vows? I should say not. In cases like that, and I've experienced my own fair share and this is why I thought about it a lot. In cases like that, is there a legitimate cause for divorce in a Christian sense? Paul, by the way, brings up another case of legitimate divorce, when you are abandoned by your spouse. Now, to be fair, he's specifically pointing out, if I remember rightly, I may be mistaken here too, but as far as I remember He's pointing out cases where a Christian is married to a non-Christian, or essentially the way we would put it is you're unequally yoked. And if that unbelieving spouse then abandons you, then you are released, is essentially how Paul puts it. But what I'm getting at is, personally, I don't see a way around that when one particular spouse is being horrible, manipulative, abusive, and all of that. That they have not, in fact, betrayed their marriage vows. And if they have betrayed their marriage vows, then why would divorce not be allowed in a Christian sense? See, consider this. Though it is merely an analogy, there is one person in the scripture who divorced and remarried a number of times. And he even put it that way. And that's God. You bristle at that? (laughs) Consider the Old Testament. Look at the prophets. This analogy is specifically used. God turns away from Israel. In the very analogy used, I can't remember which prophet it is. But in the very, very analogy used, he marries Israel. after seeing seeing her grow and be ready for the time of love, marries her and she betrays him. And he goes back and remarries her. She betrays him again. He goes back and remarries her. He's the faithful spouse. She's the unfaithful one. In this analogy. If Christ's words were to be taken back to that, And I know I'm making a very strong case, but again, this is more theoretical, right? I'm just bringing up the argument. I'm not arguing that it's correct. But if Christ's own words were to be taken back to that analogy, is it so that God is committing adultery? It's not a direct parallel, so God gets out of that even then. But it becomes a great deal more difficult, doesn't it? God Turned his back on Israel. He said it himself a number of times. Isn't that kind of like divorce? Then he comes back. And he recommits himself to his covenant. And so does Israel to him. It's a very messy relationship. How can we justify God's activities in this area? In a quote-unquote analogous marriage with Israel... And match that up with Jesus' seriousness about divorce when it comes to the people. See, where my mind's going now, and I'm kind of thinking, thinking a lot of this on the spot, but in God's case, when it comes to Israel and Israel's unfaithfulness to him, there's really no frivolousness about it, is there? There's nothing that isn't quite serious in this. For God to turn his back on Israel is an extremely serious matter. It is for legitimate reasons that God turns his back on Israel. And then when he turns His turns back towards Israel, Israel has made a very solemn decision to turn back to God. And, o- and over and over again, the cycle repeats. But never is it not serious. Never is it merely frivolous. When Jesus was talking to the Israelites, he was talking specifically about what is frivolous. He wasn't talking about people who were absolutely betraying each other, abusing each other, manipulating each other. He was talking about people, as far as I could tell, who were just eh, dissatisfied. If you understand Israel's history, you will find, if if I am right in this, and I'm pretty sure I am, that Israelite men... Were divorcing their wives for exactly the same reason why so many women are divorcing their husbands today. And dissatisfied. She doesn't please me anymore. I'm just going to get rid of her. If that is the motive, could any just-minded person today not also say the same as Jesus? You're committing adultery, dude. Or in the case of the women today, you're committing adultery, woman. You're just getting rid of this guy because he's old trash to you. You don't like him anymore, so you get rid of him. And then you marry, quote quote, unquote, marry somebody else. Wouldn't you have strong words too? If you were facing a person like that. But when it comes to instances where people are having to face divorce, not because they're just dissatisfied. But because the spouse has been night demonic to them. Are they, do they need to not ever marry again? Are they to be forced to remain single and deal with all of the struggles and all of the financial burdens that that entails? Anyway, I'm not so certain of that. I'm not so certain that Jesus would, if he was talking to us in this conversation, go that far. Some people think that he would. I don't. I really don't. But these things are up for debate. I've let you all know where I land. But, as always, my desire here is to inspire thought, not to come to final conclusions as if I know the right answers. So. That's all for, for today, everybody. Have a good one.